This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. In 2015, the U.S. entered the Paris Agreement, a new worldwide framework to deal with our changing climate and concerns over global warming. But two years later, President Trump pulled out of the agreement. In order to fulfill my solemn duty to protect America and its citizens, the United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. That from June of 2017. But after he was sworn in as our 46th president, one of Joe Biden's first actions was to return to the agreement. And a third thing I'm going to sign, and that's what I'm going to do while you're all here, is uh, the commitment I made that we're going to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord uh, as, of, uh, as of today. Ahead on the weekly, background on this accord, how it came about, and what it really means for the United States. Our conversation with Dan Michaels. He's an expert on the topic and serves as the Brussels bureau chief for The Wall Street Journal. My opening question, just what is the Paris Agreement? The Paris Agreement is uh, an international legally binding agreement. There are disputes about whether it's a treaty or not, legally, uh, but it's an agreement um, that was signed by 196 countries in uh, 2015 and came into effect the next year. And it attempts to limit how much the temperature of the Earth rises. Uh, the average temperature of the planet is is rising, and uh, it is setting out to, to try and stop that or at least hold it in control. Um, it sets a, a limit that the temperature, average temperature should be rise should be less than two degrees and preferably under one and a half degrees Celsius. You say it sets limits, but how is it enforced? How do you ensure that the countries are abiding by this agreement? Countries abiding by the agreement is one of the weaknesses of the agreement. Uh, Countries signed on to it willingly and pledged to limit the rise in, in emissions and, and their contributions to greenhouse gas emissions, uh, there is no enforcement of it. There is no Paris Accord police force out there uh, you know, waving a stick or pointing a gun at countries that don't meet their, their commitments. And in fact, I, I believe almost no country actually is meeting or even coming very close to its, uh, its commitments. Uh, Proponents say it's it's better to try than not, um, but critics say that it, 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 it imposes costs on uh, on countries and still doesn't achieve what it's setting out to. You, of course, are in Brussels, uh, in the center of Western Europe. As President Trump pulled out of this agreement uh, a couple of years ago, what was the reaction across Europe, especially among its leaders in Germany, France, and where you're at in Belgium? European leaders were quite disappointed when uh, President Trump pulled out of the Paris Accord. Uh, President Obama had had been a driving force in in making the accord happen uh, just a year or so earlier, two years earlier. Um, And uh, the U.S. is is the world's leading economy and, and one of the largest contributors to greenhouse gas emissions. And so the feeling in Europe and, and other parts of the world was that uh, 
the U.S. really needs to be a part of it to make it work, because if the U.S. isn't in it, uh, then uh, different parts of the world are, so to speak, rowing in different directions. Uh, People weren't shocked when President Trump pulled out because he had said he would do it during the campaign. But still, there was a significant sense of disappointment when it actually happened. And when that announcement came in June of 2017, once again, President Trump calling climate change a hoax. And my question is, how strong is that sentiment in Europe? Much less strong than in the U.S. Uh, There are, of course course, people who are skeptics about climate change. And like in the U.S., there are those who say climate change happens naturally. It's not caused by people. And then there are people who just say it's not really. There are some people who say it's not really happening. It's more just a natural cycle. Uh, but overall, the I think the general populace in Europe feels that uh, climate change is an issue and it needs to be addressed. One of the issues that we've been hearing about is a term called global stock take, a measure of efforts by these countries to meet the long-term goals. Can you explain what that means? The Paris Accord sets out broad targets uh, over five-year intervals. And each country, after the initial agreement, set a target for itself to reduce emissions. And as the as the clock ticks along, uh, every so often the, the countries check in on, on where they are. In fact, uh, later this year in November, there's going to be the first uh, five yearly follow up meeting in Glasgow in Scotland. Um, and there's an expectation that, that President Biden might even attend if, if it's possible. Uh, And the goal is to assess where where do we stand on meeting our commitments that were uh, laid out uh, in in 2015. As you know, one of the key architects of the Paris Agreement was then Secretary of State John Kerry, who now has a new role in the Biden administration. We sat down with him in January of last year. He was very critical of President Trump. Here's what he told us. The Paris Agreement, first of all, again, another lie from Donald Trump, who stood up when he pulled out of the agreement. He said, this place is too great a burden on us. No, not true. Lie. It doesn't present a burden on us because we wrote the plan. In fact, Paris, you say what it stand for, it was every country, all 196 countries that signed the agreement, wrote their own plan. That's how we got a plan passed, because each country would do what it could to reduce its emissions, and because we'd had the experience of Kyoto, where you couldn't pass a mandatory reduction. So, Dan Michaels, explain how each country can do what it wants, and yet there is a general framework of a certain standard to reach the goal of reducing the Earth's temperature. So part of this is is the old line about uh, politics being the art of the possible, uh, as, as the clip from uh, Secretary Kerry said that, that to, you couldn't force countries to do something. So countries committed to sort of a, a, a best effort and uh, set themselves a target, sort of like, this is what I believe I can achieve, uh, usually sort of more or less ambitious. Uh, and that the scientists who track these things and crunch the numbers uh, tried to assess the the impact of that and whether it would be significant. 
probably some of the commitments were uh, uh, far in excess of what was possible. Some were more realistic. Um, but uh, there was no way to judge what would work because the science of, of climatology is, is still in its infancy. And there's, there's no sort of big spreadsheet that you can plug the numbers into and say, aha, this will only yield you know, 1.7 degree rise. Uh, people just don't know. So there are sort of estimates made by scientists of what needs to be done in terms of reducing uh, CO2 emissions, other greenhouse gas emissions, and how that will filter through. You know, they build these big computer models and run them on supercomputers. But still, it's, it's a very sophisticated way of licking your finger and sticking it in the wind. Let me remind our listeners, we are talking with Dan Michaels. He is joining us from Brussels, where he serves as the bureau chief for The Wall Street Journal. And as you have pointed out in your extensive reporting on the issue of the Paris Climate Agreement, this is really the latest in what has been a series of efforts over the last couple of decades. You mentioned Kyoto, and back in 1992, President George H.W. Bush signing the Rio Earth Summit. How is this any different, or is it different, from previous agreements with countries around the world? It, it, it's different in, in that each country got to set its own target, and the feeling was that if countries set their own targets, they would be more willing to try to achieve those. Uh, it, it sets out a long-term plan. Um, as I recall, it's a little bit fuzzy now, but Kyoto existed for a certain amount of time, and, and, and it was replaced by the Paris Accord. The Paris Accord seeks to address that by having these five yearly checkups like is going to happen later this year in, in, in Glasgow. Uh, and so the, the plan is meant to be adaptable uh, both at the country level and over time. So when countries meet uh, later this year, one of the things they're going to see, for example, is they're nowhere near meeting the targets that they set in 2015. So they're going to have to adjust. Now, in that time, technologies have evolved. Uh, Solar, wind power are much more advanced than they were back then. So it's quite possible that uh, they will adjust the targets. And maybe because technologies have improved, while we've fallen short of our targets over the past five years, maybe we can set more ambitious targets over the next five years. That kind of flexibility and adaptability was built into the Paris Accord. And when you look at the issue of uh, global warming, how big of, of a factor is India and China? India and China are, are enormous factors. Um, in fact, it, it's been estimated here in Europe that e- even if Europe were to spend massively to hit its climate target, which it, it's not going to do, all the gain in Europe could be wiped out by India missing its target by a couple of percentage points. Uh, so it is, it, is a, it is a massive target. It is a massive challenge for the world. One of the facts of, of addressing climate change is it's expensive. Uh, cheap fuels, cheaper cars pollute. Uh, wood, coal, charcoal, uh, cheaper fuels, diesel fuel. Uh, these are big reasons that the, the planet, the, the, these are the culprits that people point to for, for climate change. Uh, 
factories that belch out smoke. Uh, it costs a lot to replace those with cleaner technologies, um, either solar and wind producing electricity, or even simply taking an old factory and putting scrubbers on the smokestacks or other systems and processes to, to take out the soot and some of the pollutants. One of the elements of the Paris Accord is that richer countries help poorer countries fund this transformation. Uh, and there are financial commitments that the wealthy countries of the world made back in 2015 to support less wealthy countries. That, in fact, was one of the reasons that President Trump pulled the U.S. out of the Paris Accord was he felt that the U.S. was subsidizing especially China and that Trump's position on China is well known. He felt, you know, as do many Americans and many Democrats and President Biden, that, that China is, is an economic threat to the United States. And Trump said by supporting China through the commitments of the Paris Accord, we're actually hurting ourselves. Supporters of the accord say it's still important to support these, these transformations in other countries. Then there's a question of whether China should be on the list of countries that receive support. That's another question. What are greenhouse gases? Greenhouse gases are a, a variety of gases that help trap sunlight in the atmosphere. And what happens is light comes through the atmosphere to the surface of the earth during the day and bounces off the surface, off the water, off the land, and radiates back into space. Kind of like a mirror, not a very good mirror, but it's a mirror for light. Now, without humans, without us putting things into the atmosphere, a natural amount of light is radiated back. The greenhouse gases reduce the amount of light that can go back into space. And so inside the atmosphere, more heat is trapped. It's the equivalent of a greenhouse where light comes in, it heats up, and the light can't, and the heat and light can't all get back out through the glass, so the greenhouse gets warmer. Uh, and it's gases like carbon dioxide, methane, which has carbon dioxide in it. It's also um, water vapor. Vapor technically is not a gas, but it has a similar effect. So those beautiful lines in the sky that jetliners leave, uh, those are made of uh, water. They're not, uh, they're not exhaust. They're just water vapor. But uh, there's growing uh, scientific evidence that those um, trails of condensed water uh, called contrails uh, help trap heat inside the atmosphere. So with that explanation, there is a recent story in the BBC that says that the U.S. historically has released more greenhouse gases than any other nation. Is that the case? The U.S. is the world's biggest economy. Uh, it, it, for many decades, was a sl smoke-belching economy. Uh, and so the, the volume of greenhouse gas traditionally has gone um, pretty close hand-in-hand -hand with uh, the size of an economy. Uh, it's only, for example, very recently that the Chinese economy has uh, come to rival the U.S. 
Um, India is growing now, but still a, a fraction of the U.S. Uh, simply as a virtue of the scale of the United States, the scale of its greenhouse gas emissions is going to be greater than pretty much any other country. This is a political agreement between country to country. What about businesses responsible for the release of these greenhouse gases and other emissions that could contribute to global warming? Businesses are a major, if not the leading cause of greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, Businesses include factories, transportation, such as airplanes, trucks, uh, shipping at sea. Uh, it's also uh, server farms uh, where, you know, when we, when we watch um, uh, Netflix or YouTube, um, all of that requires electricity. And, and the production of that electricity, for the most part, um, causes greenhouse gas emissions because there are power plants that are burning coal or gas or other uh, fuels that end up polluting. Uh, so industry is a culprit, but we have to remember that industry has consumers, and that's us. So for people to say, oh, it's all an issue of industry, uh, it's, it's important to remember, yes, industry, but we are the, the customers for industry. Uh, and so it is. it would be wrong to say that industrial culprits are somehow out there and separate from the general population. It's all part of an economy and what makes an economy go round. That said, uh, what an individual does at home is much less uh, significant in a lot of respects than what goes on in factories and on the industrial scale. Dan Michaels, let's talk about the timeline because our viewers and listeners can go to the C-SPAN video library. In June of 2017, President Trump announcing the withdrawal of the Paris Climate Agreement, but it did not become official until November 4th of 2020, one day after the election. Joe Biden becomes the 46th president on January 20th, and reestablishing our agreement with the Paris Agreement was one of his first orders of business. And so in looking at the timeline did anything really change? The first thing to put in perspective here is that when politicians and diplomats make agreements like this, they they want to make them difficult to leave. And so that was the reason for this lag between when President Trump announced the U.S. departure and it actually taking effect. Uh, so it, it, it removes a degree of capriciousness from international diplomacy. Now, In that time, it was up to the U.S. government to fulfill certain commitments made under the Paris Accord. And the U.S. government under President Trump was not really doing that. It wasn't uh, offering financial support to other countries to help them transform uh, their economies and reduce their uh, greenhouse gas emissions, uh, at least not nearly to the level that had originally been committed Uh, President Trump at the same time was uh, deregulating industry in ways that uh, removed restrictions that had sought to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And so while the U.S. didn't officially and formally leave the accord until long after President Trump announced it, its commitments and its effort to support the accord were already significantly decreased, if not 
completely non-existent. Here in Washington, one of the biggest critics of the Paris Agreement, Senator Mike Lee, Republican of Utah. And a couple of years ago, he appeared on MSNBC's Morning Joe. Here's what he had to say. When the United States commits to something, it abides by the rule of law. When other countries do the same, it doesn't necessarily have the same effect. When we tie ourselves to an agreement internationally, we know that other agreements might not abide by their limits. When we ourselves tie them to them, we know that we will to ours. I'd hate to see us harm our own economy by agreeing to something that other people were agreeing with wasn't aren't this, going to follow. Wasn't this largely voluntary, though? Uh, yes, but in time, this is going to become customary international law. In time, it's going to become a broader but, commitment. I mean, but it's not now, so so why get out now? Well, the, the, Especially, when, I mean, we've made a lot of the tough choices, as you know, over the past 20 or 30 years. It's now time for China and Pakistan and India to make a lot of those tough choices. Don't we have more leverage if we actually stay involved? And lead? It doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to follow, nor does it mean that we need to follow a course that says, let's regulate. We've already got $2 trillion of regulatory compliance costs put on the American economy. Those costs are not borne by big, wealthy, corporate fat cats. They're borne by America's middle class, who pay higher prices for everything they purchase. And yet through innovation, through technology, through free market processes, we've managed to reduce emissions. We've managed to build vehicles. That from Senator Mike Lee, 2017, in an MSNBC interview. And Dan Michaels, you've heard that argument, I'm sure, from your vantage point in Europe. What's your response? There's no question that cleaning up the environment is expensive and it creates a burden on, on any economy. If you think back to sort of the golden years of the U.S. economy, say the 1950s or even in the 1800s, uh, often those times are accompanied by images of smokestacks belching out thick black smoke. Uh, Putting uh, uh, scrubbers, environmental controls on factories, on cars, it adds costs. It, it, uh, it's just another layer of, of problem, of hassle for the people running it. Uh, so, yes, there, there is a cost. Uh, and it is true that the U.S. has cut its emissions. I was just looking at some of the numbers that uh, U.S. emissions uh, were down 21.5%. Uh, last year below where they were in 2005. Um, uh, And um, the ability of U.S. industry to uh, cut emissions has been quite remarkable. Uh, And in other countries, either they don't have the same resources to invest or the same uh, entrepreneurial spirit to find business models that help cut emissions. Uh, So then it comes to the question that uh, this has been the the core of this, who pays? Um, Is it U.S. consumers who pay because their costs go up uh, because of uh, emissions controls? Uh, Is it the U.S. economy that loses out to, say, China or India or Pakistan because they're not investing in climate controls and they're producing things uh, cheaply uh, and without that extra layer of cost of of environmental controls, Uh, then the the question is, is in the longer term, who pays? If the uh, environment is uh, degrading and and having problems, a lot of people would say, you know, we all pay. Uh, If if polar ice caps melt, uh, it doesn't discriminate by country. And uh, the argument is 
that it's good to um, help countries that need help so that the planetary temperature doesn't rise uh, as much as, as scientists fear, because the concern is that, that if only some countries are taking efforts and others aren't, then the temperature is just going to keep rising. Because, as you well know, even though the Democrats now have control of the White House, that America first sentiment, let's not be part of these global agreements, still very strong in this country, and many of them still supporting President Trump's actions in 2017. There is a, a, a strong feeling in the U.S., as, as your clip from Senator Lee said, that, that when the U.S. commits to something, it does it, and it does it well, um, and that the U.S. will be shouldering this burden of the cost when others aren't. And there are a lot of people who feel that other countries, um, particularly China, are getting a free ride at America's expense and, uh, and that the, they're benefiting while American consumers uh, and the American taxpayer is suffering. It's a similar debate here in Europe, and Europe has uh, very strict policies on the environment, um, arguably stricter than, than those in the U.S., although, to be fair, the U.S. Um, over time has actually done more to improve emissions than Europe. Europe is catching up now, uh, but there are a lot of Europeans who say, that we Europeans are are suffering when China uh, or India or other countries aren't uh, spending as much. Um, and uh, it's, it, it puts a burden on Europe. And Europe is uh, at a competitive disadvantage against both China and the U.S. So it's a, it's a hot issue here, too. So let me conclude where we began our conversation in talking about this agreement without any binding enforcement mechanisms for lack of a better phrase, is it peer pressure by the countries saying, this is what we're doing, you better do the same or exceed those goals? How does it, how does it work? When the Paris Accord was struck in 2015, it definitely was an element of, um, of, of peer pressure, international peer pressure, and some pressure from voters. And President Obama at the time um, it seemed pretty clear, you know, felt convinced that this this was his duty as president to uh, help strike this accord and, and, and um, tackle the issue of climate change. Since then, uh, it's become arguably a more divisive issue. But I believe that, that uh, uh, opinion surveys show that a growing percentage of Americans feel that climate change is an issue and it needs to be addressed. So ultimately, it's the voter that you know, uh, President Biden won more votes than than Trump did, um, in part because you know, at least some of those voters felt the climate is an issue and they wanted a candidate uh, who felt uh, tackling climate change uh, is is an issue and is, is a, a priority. Um, so, yes, there's international pressure, but ultimately it's the ballot box. So let me conclude with this question. Moving ahead in the short term, you mentioned the Glasgow-Scotland summit that will be taking place, if all goes well, later this year. What does the U.S. need to do? What does Secretary Kerry need to do? What are the biggest challenges for the United States? The first challenge would seem to be in when he meets his counterparts um, to discuss the, the Paris Accord is rebuilding U.S. credibility. I mean, no one will doubt Kerry's credibility on this. He helped write the, the Paris Accord. Uh, no one will doubt uh, President Biden's sincerity. But the U.S. as a whole 
I think it, probably Europe, others will be looking at it to see is the U.S. really going to take uh, measures that will address climate change and also commit money to helping other countries address climate change. Uh, and then looking beyond that, the, there will be questions about what is the U.S. going to do to help uh, accelerate efforts to to tackle climate change because every country is behind on its targets and a lot of work needs to be done if the, the targets are, are going to be met and, and if, um, uh, if we're going to do things like uh, slow the, the melting of, of um, glaciers and ice caps and, and things like that. Dan Michaels is the bureau chief in Brussels for The Wall Street Journal. He has written extensively on the Paris Agreement and climate change in general. His work is available at WSJ.com. We thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And a reminder to follow our programming on Twitter at C-SPAN Radio. This podcast, The Weekly, and all of our podcasts available wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. We thank you for listening.